This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Amanda Machaga driving the show with Onelen Zinzi with Sunny Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest. The Forum for Africa-China Cooperation draws to a close in Beijing. South Africa's Minister of Health says the battle against listeriosis is officially won. In economics, Ghana considers a century bond worth 50 billion US dollars as part of the plan to secure long-term funding to build critical infrastructure. And in sports, Bafana Bafana hit with injury concerns ahead of Libya Afcon qualifier clash. But first, here's Onela with the news. Thank you, Amanda. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has signed the final peace agreement pending its full implementation at a date yet to be announced. The agreement is expected to end more than five years of ethnic fighting in Africa's newest nation, addressing local and international journalists in Khartoum. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay expressed optimism that discussions on the implementation of the agreement will bear fruit. James Shimanyula has more. The eager foreign affairs ministers that were participating in the Khartoum talks will join the team in Khartoum after returning from the China-Africa summit, which is expected to end tomorrow, Tuesday. The Igad Council of Ministers, McQuay, went on to tell the journalists in Khartoum will adopt the agreement and the implementation matrix, and thereafter, the document will be presented to the Igad summit for approval before implementation. Thousands of supporters of Mali's leader Ibrahim Boubacar Keita marched through the capital a day after opponents held a protest against his re-election in a disputed presidential one-off. The non-violent rally comes days ahead of Keita's inauguration for another five-year term. The opposition refused to accept the outcome of the August 12 runoff election that pitted Keita against former finance minister Sumaila Sisa. The president won last month's ballot with 67.16% of the vote, while Sisa polled 32.84%. The death toll from a Boko Haram attack on a Nigerian army post on the border with Niger has risen to 48. Scores of Boko Haram fighters in trucks stormed the base on Thursday in Zari village in northern Bono State and briefly seized it after a fierce battle. Boko Haram, which has been waging a deadly insurgency in Nigeria since 2009, has intensified attacks on military targets in recent months. At least 30 Nigerian soldiers were initially said to have been killed. 
Chairperson of the African Union and Rwandan President Paul Kagame has urged African leaders to scale up the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation to benefit the continent's population. He was speaking at the start of the Forum on China-Africa Forum Summit underway in Beijing, China. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa and his Chinese counterpart opened the summit earlier today. The objective of the summit is to strengthen relations between Africa and China. Kagame says FOCAC is a, a winning cooperation between China and the continent. The relationship between Africa and China is based on equality, mutual respect and a commitment to shared well-being. Today, the forum has grown into a powerful engine of cooperation. China's engagement in Africa has been deeply transformational, both internally and with respect to Africa's global position. That's why we now want to reinforce and scale up the forum in order to maximize the benefits. And lastly, South Africa's health minister, Aaron Mozwaledi, has warned that although the listeriosis outbreak is over, South Africans should continue to take necessary precautions. Listeriosis has killed oh, close to 200 people since March this year. Mozwaledi says all the country's 157 facilities that produce ready-to-eat foods have been inspected and have tested negative. He briefed the media in Johannesburg. The incidence rate of laboratory-confirmed listeria cases has dropped to the pre-outbreak levels. Therefore, the conclusion is that the outbreak of listeriosis in South Africa is over. And I'm here to announce to you officially that we no longer have a listeria outbreak in South Africa. Yeah, you can clap harder. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Tsinzi. Thank you, Onele. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation has managed to dispel the colonial label some have been accusing the Chinese government of practicing in the continent. He was speaking at the start of the third forum held in Beijing. Chinese President Xi Jinping has pledged more cooperation and committed 60 billion U.S. dollars to help Africa achieve its development objectives. Ndaba Mukobo reports. It's the coming together of more than 50 African leaders on the Chinese soil, and the meeting is graced by the world's chief diplomat, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. China seems to be well aware of the accusation that it is seeking to recolonize the African continent. Perhaps the reason why the Chinese president continues to stress that his cooperation with Africa has no strings attached to it. Founded in 2000, the China-Africa Forum is already producing massive results and major infrastructure development projects by China in Africa bear testimony to this. President Cyril Ramaphosa says this has proved they are detractors wrong. Since its launch in the year 2000, FOCAC has grown both in extent and scope in the manner that it operates and in the impact that it has on African countries. FOCAC refutes the view that a new colonialism is taking hold in Africa, as our detractors would have us believe. We appreciate new funding to African countries to the value of $60 billion. 
Through this partnership, we are working together to advance growth and development on the African continent. The Chinese government has once again pledged another 60 billion US dollars to help fund various projects on the continent, as President Xi Jinping explains. China will extend 60 billion dollars of financing to Africa in the form of government assistance as well as investment and financing by financial institutions and companies. This will include this will include 15 billion dollars of grants, interest-free loans and concessional loans, 20 billion dollars of credit lines, the setting up of a $10 billion special fund for development financing and a $5 billion special fund for financing imports from Africa. And the continental body welcomes the cooperation with the world's second biggest economy. Chairperson of the African Union and Rwandan President Paul Kagame has used the occasion to urge his African counterparts to scale up the Forum on China-Africa cooperation to benefit Africa's population. The relationship between Africa and China is based on equality, mutual respect, and a commitment to shared well-being. Today, the forum has grown into a powerful engine of cooperation. China's engagement in Africa has been deeply transformational, both internally and with respect to Africa's global position. That's why we now want to reinforce and scale up the forum in order to maximize the benefits. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged China and Africa to put ordinary people at the center of their cooperation. Stronger cooperation between China and Africa can lead to sustainable, environmentally friendly and resilient development in Africa that is inclusive, reaching first those people that are furthest behind. And we are ready to support the strengthening of governance and institutional capacities in African countries to ensure country ownership and leadership and fully respond to the needs and aspirations of Africa's people. A particular concern are education and job opportunities for young people and equality and empowerment for the continent, women and girls. South Africa will hand over the co-chairing of the forum to Senegal on Tuesday. I am Tebo Mokobo, Beijing in China. Channel Africa spoke to Dr. Guobas van Staden, a China-Africa relations expert, about the importance of Falkirk for Africa and whether the bilateral agreements that South Africa and China signed yesterday came as a surprise. The agreements were signed at the conclusion of a state visit by South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa to China ahead of Falkirk. It was expected that there would be these kind of agreements. Um, Falkirk is the, is the occasion for a lot of African countries to make, um, to have negotiations with China about possible new agreements, particularly financing agreements. Um, it also comes after the BRICS summit, you know, which, which already showed us that, that South Africa and China are both quite enthusiastic to, to set up new agreements between the two. You know, and, and I think a lot of the ground was prepared uh, during, during President Xi's visit to South Africa earlier this year around the BRICS summit. So it is expected, but at the same time, there are, there are quite, quite expansive and large. You know, as you mentioned, the the, the trade investment um, 
MOU that was signed was, you know, is quite big. And then we also have other memorandums of understanding signed on issues around climate change, on transport, on water, and, and so on. So I think I think it's, it's a quite broad base. Now, more than 40 African presidents and about 1,000 business people are attending the forum. How vital is this forum, Doctor, to Africa's short to medium-term growth prospects? I think it's quite important in the sense that it provides a space where all of these African leaders can, you know, can speak with China. Um, in China is obviously it's a very big trade partner. It's a, an increasingly important investment partner, um, and it's a big financier of, of infrastructure on the continent. The African leaders also get to speak to each other. You know, so, so there is a potential for for them to to work out other kinds of regional um, arrangements at the same time. At the same, uh, one also has to keep in mind, though, that a lot of these meetings could just have been held, you know, behind the scenes or just through normal state visits. The FOCAC Summit has its own kind of theater. Um, so part of, it, part of its importance is that it is, provides this moment of high visibility for China-Africa relations um, to kind of remind the world that, that China is an increasingly dominant, strong presence in Africa. And so it, it concentrates discussion and debate around that issue, which I think is also important. But one of the criticisms of China-Africa partnership is that China's investments on the continent are perceived as a debt trap for African nations. Are there political strings attached to these investments, Doctor? Or do you think these criticism is aimed at discouraging African-Chinese interactions as Rwandan President Paul Kagame, the current chair of the African Union, has put it. It's kind of a little of both, in the sense that some of some of these kind of big investments, some of these these um, these loan agreements um, can, have been controversial, um, and some of them have you know, have been accused of, 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 for example, overpaying for for infrastructure. And the negotiations are opaque, so so it's we the, the normal people don't necessarily get to see what what went on behind the scenes. Sure. At the same time, the problem is that a lot of this criticism of the calling African uh, the Chinese loans to Africa debt trap comes from Western countries that are also quite concerned about the rise of China in Africa. So it has strategic implications for the West. And it's not necessary that, 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 that Africa would have the same preoccupations. Africa is trying to get the best deal. And, you know, at the moment, you know, Western countries are not lending a lot. China is lending a lot. So there is a big opportunity here, but it is very important for, for African countries to be quite proactive to make sure that the terms of the deals are as, as good as they can get them. How is the United States President Donald Trump's protectionist approach going to influence their agenda of forecast adopted i would i would think that it would definitely be discussed the, the trade protectionism is, is hurting both china and africa in the sense that it makes it much harder to to plug africa into global value chains and it, it, it raises prices um, around the world as well um, so I would I would expect that it would definitely be on the agenda, and Falcac is to a certain extent part of how of China's um, move against this kind of trade trade isolationism by by setting up networks in the in the global south. 
So China has been has been doing a lot of work to try and kind of build relationships with other countries in the global south, of which Africa is obviously a, a major part. And perceptions that the U.S. is generally not very interested in doing business with Africa, I think, boosts that relationship. Now, three countries will be joining the forum this year for the first time. I'm talking here about Burkina Faso, Gambia, Sao Tome, and Principe. What do you make of this new additional members? Yeah, that's, it's, it's an interesting move. The, the reason that they're joining now is because they used to have relationships with Taiwan and you know according to that's one of the one of the, the pillars of Chinese foreign policy is you can't both have relations diplomatic relationships with, with both Taiwan and China if you have d- diplomatic relationships with China you have to cut your relationships with Taiwan and these countries used to be Taiwanese allies and then moved over to China the one country that's still a holdout in Africa the only one on the continent is Swatini um, formerly Swaziland which still has strong diplomatic relationships with Taiwan um, and have refused so far to to, to, shift, to shift to China. Um, it shows, I think, that that how the wind is blowing uh, in terms of in terms of funding and investment. It shows what a big player China is on the African continent now. And I think it also shows that African countries are increasingly worried about being left out of a big gatherings like FOGAC. That's Dr. Gwobas van Staden, senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, talking to Kumbero Munzarede. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 17 minutes after 5 p.m. Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. I'm Amanda Machaga in Force Pumelele Zondi. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has signed the final peace agreement pending its full implementation at a date yet to be announced. James Manula reports. At last, South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has appended his signature to the new peace agreement that is expected to end more than five years of ethnic fighting in Africa's newest nation. Today, Monday, all parties involved in peace talks in Sudan's capital Khartoum resumed discussions on the final matrix for the full implementation of the agreement. Addressing local and international journalists in Khartoum, South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay expressed optimism that discussions on the implementation of the agreement will bear fruit. We are optimistic, McQuay says, that we will be in a position to finish the work this week with a view to implementing the agreement. McQuay said eager foreign affairs ministers that were participating in the Khartoum talks will join the team in Khartoum 
after returning from the China-Africa summit, which is expected to end tomorrow, Tuesday. The Igad Council of Ministers, Makwe, went on to tell the journalists in Khartoum will adopt the agreement and the implementation matrix, and thereafter, the document will be presented to the Igad summit for approval before implementation, confirming the importance of Igad Council of Ministers approving the peace agreement, which he refers to as document African Union Special Envoy to South Sudan, Ismail Ways said. It will be necessary to conduct a Council of Ministers meeting to approve the documents and consult and give guidance about the still remaining issues. This will be followed by the summit, and in that summit they will determine the date of signing the document. That was Ismail Weiss, African Union's special envoy to South Sudan. The agreement that he says Igad Council of Ministers will sign is the very agreement that Riek Machar and Salva Kiri have already signed. Signatures of Igad Council of Ministers are important because they represent concrete approval of the agreement pending its implementation. Meanwhile, ordinary people of South Sudan have made varying comments on the Khartoum talks and the content of the new peace agreement as well as the 32 new states that were unilaterally created in South Sudan by President Kiir and which have formed part of discussions at the Khartoum talks. When you sign an agreement, you sign an agreement to address the causes of the war. Why do we stick to the issue of the states? Let us wait. And for me, the status quo should be left as it is today. Riek Machar's powers have been greatly reduced from what they were in 2015. In 2015, he was almost on the same level as the president. But in this uh, draft proposal of the agreement, some of his powers have been reduced. Although he's still going to be more senior than the other vice presidents, he doesn't have too many veto powers as he had in the previous agreement. The issue of the states was resolved and they signed that document. But there has been reaction from their supporters that maybe they have given too much away. And so maybe they wanted to use this opportunity to try to retract. In 2015, Riek Machar came to Juba as quite a significant and strong opposition leader both in military terms and in terms of political support. Since then, his party has split and broken up, and his military also has receded significantly in terms of its power on the ground. And so he cannot impose his will on the other parties. And the oppositions, they are multiplied in number, but they have not created significant pressure internally to force the government to accept all their demands. Those were voices of ordinary South Sudanese. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Women make up two-thirds of the world's illiterate population, with the vast majority of these women living in rural areas. Illiteracy levels amongst women are high as they are often forced to leave school to marry and look after their families. A study by United Nations Children's Fund shows that women in sub-Saharan Africa collectively spend about 40 billion hours a year collecting water. We spoke to the Southern African Institute, Institution of Learning's Peter Muleka about why rural women are often forgotten by society, especially when it comes to their economic contributions. 
Obviously, uh, gender inequality exists largely among the poor, and there has been a considerable increase in gender inequality in education among people with lower income. So, obviously, the, the, the gender equality, especially in rural areas, it's affecting uh, women. And most of them, they find themselves, you know, unable to access education and obviously they are, there's no improvement from, from their side in terms of from the economy side of things. So that, that's, that's the challenge. But I think mainly because of uh, education, most of them are unable to access education. What does that um, inaccessibility to education speak to? What are some of the contributing factors um, for them to be unable to get that education, apart from, you know, just the gender inequality in itself? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the 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 the, the problem. Obviously, it's the the, the culture issue. Uh, you know, to say probably the women are not really being considered. Uh, you know, for based on uh, the, the 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 culture basically, and most of them they they find themselves in a in a, in a position where uh, they are unable to access education, and and even the parents as well when they they look at options of educating their kids, they wouldn't look at the girl child. And, and in most cases, that, that's, that's the challenge, and, and that on its own impact on, on, on growth of uh, a woman, uh, you know, and impacted the economic growth, basically. So that, that, that's where the challenge is. But I think it's, it's because of, you know, it's a culture issue, and, and obviously the fact that the, 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 the economy at this stage is not really supportive to in the, the women in rural areas. Are things changing, though? Are we seeing um, some women in rural areas uh, being educated or enrolling in courses, or is the situation still as dire as it was a couple of years back? Yes, things are changing. Uh, I think they, there is a lot of changes in an actual fact. I mean, if you look at the, 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 the policies around BEE, and you look at uh, the, the public sector as well in terms of what are they doing to ensure that they uh, capacitate the women, especially in rural areas. There, are, there is a lot of things that are happening. And obviously, even from our side, from Southern African Institute of Learning, uh, there are a lot of things that we are doing in terms of trying to uh, upskill uh, the, the women in rural areas. Uh, we have developed a lot of programs uh, basically to try and, and, and make sure that the, the women in rural areas are being impacted, that they, they have a, a business training and, and they are being empowered. So basically, I, I would say there is a lot of progress. Let's reflect a bit more on some of these programs that you have as the Southern Institution of Learning. Um, you know, talking to what kind of programs do you have and how do women um, really get involved? Yeah, uh, the, the good part of it is that we are on a process where we are planning to train 1,957 rural uh, women to ensure that we empower them with uh, business, you know, knowledge. Because one of the some of the reason why most of them are failing and they are unable to, you know, to participate in the the, the economy is because they they are not skilled enough. They don't have knowledge. They can't easily be part of uh, all the gov- the programs that the government is currently rolling out. So that's, that's, that's one of the challenges. So from a Southern African Institute, institution, what we are trying to do at this stage is to make sure that we upskill them, we give them knowledge so that they know how to participate in some of this uh, program that government is currently rolling out. That's Peter Muleka, Marketing Director at Southern African Institution of Learning, talking to Homo Tomopolani. 
Political parties remain divided on bailing out the South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC, more than two weeks since the public broadcaster presented its dire financial situation to Parliament. The Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Communications was told by executives how the SABC's liquidity dropped from 100 million rands in July to 26 million at the end of August. The SABC has reliably learned that issues dividing the parties include those who see the broadcasters rebranding independent and impartial as a threat. Takonengatane reports. Media analysts say independent public broadcasters made strong civil societies and economies and reduced crime in the Nordic countries, yet in South Africa the SABC is grappling with financial woes. The ANC and UDM support a bailout. ANC spokesperson Pule Mabe. The intention behind the bailout is on a positive side, to make sure that you could be able to take these institutions to a point where they could self-sustain. UDM chief whip Ngabayomzi Kwankwa. So it's very difficult to say that you cannot throw a lifeline to people uh, that you've just assigned a task to because it means you'd be setting them up to fail. DA's Pumzile Fandam is confident the party's view of a no bailout is shared by ordinary South Africans. If you ask the ordinary South African if money should be used to consistently bail out state owned entities, the answer will be no. The ANC says it supports the SABC's rebranding to independent and impartial, the UDM is skeptical, and the DA is not yet impressed, but for now, the public broadcaster continues to receive letters of demand from creditors. Johannesburg. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month Conversations. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism. Um, The nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times. Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time. And from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It's 17.30 Central African time. On Ellenson's is standing by with our news headlines.
Thousand supporters of Mali's leader Ibrahim Boubacar Keita marched through the capital a day after opponents held a protest against his re-election. Chairperson of the African Union and Rwandan President Paul Kagame urges African leaders to scale up the Forum on China-Africa cooperation in order to benefit the continent's population. And Zimbabwe donates 10 white rhinos to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. Thank you, Nelly. While men are often encouraged to screen for prostate cancer, many of them don't really know what the functions of a prostate are, a walnut-sized gland located between the bladder and the penis. This is despite prostate cancer being the second most diagnosed cancer in men and the third most common cause of cancer deaths worldwide. This form of cancer is a disease defined by the abnormal growth of cells. These abnormal cells can multiply in an uncontrolled way and if left untreated, form a tumorous tumors rather which may spread to other parts of the body prostate cancer has the potential to grow and spread quickly but for most men it is a relatively slow growing disease dr homuzo matabe a urologist in south africa explains what a prostate gland is the prostate gland is an organ which is found only in males and it sits just underneath the bladder So the urethra, the pipe that leads urine from within the bladder outside of the body and also which transmits the ejaculate, when a male patient ejaculates, that pipe is called the urethra and it runs down the center of the prostate gland. If you imagine the prostate gland being like an apple that's been cored down the middle and then having a tube run through that. So the urethra runs down the middle of the prostate gland. What are the main functions of the prostate, doctor? So the prostate is a little bit funny in that we haven't quite figured out why, but it continues to grow. You know, we all get to a certain age, you know, in our late teens when we stop growing, but the prostate gland continues to grow. And we haven't quite figured out why it continues to do that. And most of the problems around the prostate are related to this continuous growth throughout a man's life. So its primary function is that when a man ejaculates, the ejaculate is in a bit of a gel form. So it's a blob of gel within which the sperm are trapped and that's just to allow transmission outside of the body. But if we are looking for conception and this ejaculate lands inside the woman's vagina close to the cervix and we're wanting conception, we cannot have conception resulting if the sperm are trapped within this gel-like liquid. So what the prostate does is that there are certain properties within the prostate, which then liquefy that gel. And through the liquefaction process, then the sperm are released and can then travel up the cervix, up into the uterus, and towards the fallopian tube, which is where conception would then occur. So without the prostate, we cannot have conception. So in the ejaculate, there's a few different components to the ejaculate fluid, one of which is from the seminal vesicles. So one of the contributions to the ejaculate fluid is from the seminal vesicles and some from the prostate and some from cowper's glands. And that whole thing together with the sperm from the testes is then what ends up in the woman's vagina. Now, with the prostate being so small and invisible from the outside, do most men know and understand its multiple important functions? No, and I must say, on average, men do not know what the function of the prostate is. 
And it is a bit of a you know private conversation that has to happen. I mean, it's easier now with all the stuff that's available online that people can actually seek knowledge in the privacy of their homes. But, I mean, I have been asked to speak on the prostate, like, you know, to a church group and to be standing, you know, in front of the whole congregation and kind of say, you know, the function of the prostate is to liquefy the ejaculate. You know, so some things just can't be had as a general conversation out in the general public. How often should one screen for prostate cancer? Also touch on how it's done. I always say this to male patients that, you know, every single man, if they live long enough, will have an enlarged prostate and the symptoms and signs related to an enlarged prostate. And all of those symptoms and signs are related to urinary function. So an enlarged prostate will happen in every single man. Some patients might have the symptoms and signs in their 40s, and some patients it might only be when they're 80 or 90. And there are various ways to treat that. It can be medical through the form of tablets. It can be surgical. However, only a few men will then have prostate cancer, just like only a few women will have breast cancer. We all have breasts, but we're not all going to get breast cancer. And the thing with prostate cancer is that unfortunately by the time we get to picking up that you've got prostate cancer, it's often advanced. So we want to pick it up before it becomes manifest. And the only way that we can do that to screen for it is through an examination of the prostate and also then a physical examination of the prostate and then also through a blood test. So these two things should be done in conjunction by your doctor. And we normally say, if a man has this done at age of 40, depending on what the blood count says, we might not need to do anything. We might not need to see them again for another four or five years. In the past, we used to say that screening should start at age 50, but we found that when we started screening at age 50, we were catching you know, cancers that were a little bit advanced. So we weren't catching them early enough for a first screening at 40 years, at least once, and then the frequency of the testing thereafter will be you know, discussed with your doctor, with your urologist. Is there a group of men that prostate cancer hits the hardest? That is up for debate. We don't have a lot of research, unfortunately, coming out of you know, Africa and out of South Africa. So in the U.S., they are saying that prostate cancer is more aggressive in black males and that, you know, black males typically present later and therefore it has worse outcomes in black males. It possibly is not true because what they found in the U.K. was that where they have universal access to health was that actually, you know, black men were as bad or as good as white males because they had universal access to health and therefore could go for their screening and their treatment early enough, it seems that the difference is not really based on race, but rather based on access to health. Let's talk about the current gaps in care for men with prostate cancer. Also, is there any work being done to address these? Yes, there is definitely work being done. Our public health system is overburdened. We have far more patients than we have resources, so we do not have a national screening program in government. What we're doing in government is we are screening people opportunistically. What we do do is that men who do present seeking health for any reason, who are of the right age group, so it could be a urethral stricture, it could be a heart attack, it could be whatever it is that they're presenting to us with, and those men, we certainly take the opportunity to examine them, to screen them. There's Dr. Khumuzo Matabi, a urologist in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha.
Can South Africa's youth feed the continent? What would it take for Africa to be food secure? Does the continent have the right structures in place to ensure that by 2050 it can meet its food demands without having to import or stretch out the baking bowl? Well, these are some of the questions that experts, African policymakers and farmers will seek to address when they meet in Rwanda this week for the African Green Revolution Forum, AGRF. Sarah Kimani filed this report ahead of that crucial meeting. It is 8 a.m. and Faxa Bital has been up for five hours, during which time he has met his seven cows and slaughtered 200 chickens. We are here just as it prepares to send off the last batch of slaughtered chickens to the day's clients. And then he begins other chores in his farm. This has been his daily routine for four years now. He started while still an undergraduate student at the University of Nairobi studying economics. And for me why agriculture really is, uh, it's, very, it's very simple. People need to eat given uh, the chance three times a day, given the chance four or five times a day. That means the market for uh, food products is actually there. And yet we are still growing in terms of population. So that means more demand for food, more markets. So for me that is a simple thing. Everyone needs to go into it because it's, it's business. So big is the food market that Africa's annual import bill stands at $40 billion according to the latest statistics. It is expected to rise to $110 billion by 2025. Dr. Agnes Kalibata is the president of AGRA. We have a significant part of our population um, that see agriculture as a subsistence business, that don't see the opportunity that it offers. And yet if you look at some of, our, of the big economies out there, the proportion of agriculture to the economy is huge. And if when you look at our GDPs, most of our countries are still earning on 30% contribution from agriculture. Yetao started off with $600, which helped him keep 200 chicken. He has since employed two farmhands. He gets 120 liters of milk daily from his seven dairy cows and slaughters 200 chickens every day. All this produce has already market. He keeps the cows and chickens on a section of land where his parents once practiced this kind of farming. My parents used to do 10 cows and used to get 50 liters. Me, I'm doing only 7 cows and getting 120 liters. Because what are you doing differently? Because for me, I have been able to uh, go to other farms and to learn, uh, to learn different practices, different uh, new ways of actually feeding cows. Because really, feeding is, cows is all about management. Management includes feeding, includes uh, how well they are kept, includes uh, their health as well. According to Dr. Kalibata, developing skills is key to ending perennial hunger in Africa. The agriculture industry is worth $1 trillion across this continent, right? The question is how you build these value chains that feed into the agricultural sector so that there is an opportunity for youth to be part of. Um, and it's going to be a number of things. It's going to be what type of skills do, do youth have to be able to engage in agriculture. Um, because an agriculture, the agriculture sector is a skills sector. You have to have the ability to make something productive. Yetao makes his own cattle feed, a vital element in the production of high milk yields.
The United Nations estimates that at least 17 million people are entering the African job market every year. Less than half are absorbed into gainful employment. While research shows that if countries committed at least 10% of their GDP to agriculture, economies would grow by 6%, less than 10 out of 55 African countries achieve their commitment on agricultural spending. For me, the issue becomes what are the policies that are, and the institutional mechanisms that are driving how we manage the agricultural sector in Africa. So, if Africa is to feed itself, this is where to start. I think really as Kenya, we have enough policies in paper. That's a problem. We have very many policies, but they are actually never seen to be implemented. When African leaders, private investors and smallholder farmers meet in Kigali this week to see what more Africa can do to feed itself, they will have a chance to ask themselves tough questions. Today, India, with 1.3 billion people, has the capacity to feed itself for a period of two years if they had 100% drought. They would feed 1.3 billion people for a period of two years without producing more food. How long would Africa feed itself for if we had one drought after the other? How long would we feed even three months? I'm not sure that three months would, would work. For that reason alone, we need to worry as leaders that we have the, cap the capability to feed ourselves is just not grounded. A wake-up call. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Kule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following time, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It's approaching 17.46 Central African time with San Nima Tebula standing by with our economics news. Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. Economists have ruled out the possibility of a potential recession for South Africa in the second quarter of the year. This comes on the eve of Statistics South Africa's release of the second quarter growth number for 2018. The GDP growth had dropped by 2.2% in the first quarter of the year. A recession is characterized by two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Economists have cautioned that while a recession may be off the cards, growth will remain depressed in the second quarter. Elit Kruger from NKC Economists uh, says consumers remain under pressure. 
The South African economy remains under pressure in quarter two due to many headwinds coming our way from a higher VAT rate effective 1st of April to higher fuel prices and still a dose of, of policy uncertainty keeping the economy back. So our forecast is a 0.8% positive growth quarter on quarter seasonally adjusted annualized that compares to the 2.2% contraction in quarter one. So though it's positive and we should avert a technical recession, it's still very low. And South Africa's public broadcaster, the SABC, says although it's in a difficult financial position, it has not made any decision on job cards. The company released its annual financial statement. Employees expressed concerns about weakened reports that job cards were looming. However, SABC spokesperson Neo Momodu says this is not on the table right now. The SABC is, has not embarked in this process and that given our financial situation, the CEO said he has instructed his ex-co members to start looking at various ways of cutting costs. And he said if retrenchments become one such option, the SABC is conscious of the legislative requirements that need to be followed before you know, they embark on this process, including engagement with the relevant unions and staff members. And South Africa's Public Investment Corporation, the PIC, says it will support a takeover of a platinum producer, Lawnmen, by precious metals producer, Sibanya Steelwater. State-owned PIC is the largest shareholder in struggling Lawnmen, holding 29.2%, and is Sibanya's second largest shareholder, with 11.2% stake. Lawnmen has been the biggest casualty in South Africa's platinum sector, which is under pressure from rising costs and muted prices. The deal will make Sibanya the world's second biggest platinum producer. And South Africa's Energy Minister Jeff Khadebe saying government will absorb most of this month's uh, fuel price increase. Petrol will increase by 5 cents a litre to cater for the annual increase of petrol station staff. South Africa has witnessed sustained increases in fuel prices for the past few months which have placed a strain on consumers. And the Chinese government has announced another 60 billion US dollars aid at, uh, to the African continent in the next three years. This came out at the opening of the third forum on China-Africa cooperation underway in Beijing, China. Chinese President Xi Jinping is co-chairing the summit and attended by over 50 African heads of state. Speaking through an interpreter, Xi Jinping explains his country's aid to Africa. China will extend $60 billion of financing to Africa in the form of government assistance as well as investment and financing by financial institutions and companies. This will include this will include $15 billion of grants, interest-free loans and concessional loans, $20 billion of credit lines, the setting up of a $10 billion special fund for development financing and a $5 billion special fund for financing imports from Africa. Financial indicators now, the dollar trading at uh, 10.58, Botswana Pula 10.26, Zambian Guacha, BRICS currencies, we've got the dollar stronger at 4.5, Brazilian Real 67.48, Russian Ruble. 70.68 Indian rupee, 6.83 Chinese yuan, and at 14.66 South African rand.
Also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities now gold $1,199, platinum $782 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil up to $77.40 per barrel. And that's your economics news right now. Thank you, Isani. Time now for our sports news with Musibuti Makura. Thank you, Amanda. Good day, sports fans. The Bafana Bafana camp is currently resembling a hospital ward exactly five days before the crucial 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualify against Libya at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban this coming Saturday. Before players were forced to be withdrawn from the team this morning after they suffered injuries playing for their respective teams this past weekend. French-based duo of Bongani Zungu and Lebu Mutiba, as well as the Mamelodi Sundowns duo of Tambazwane and Sompoke Ghana won't be joining this camp anymore. Now, head coach Stuart Baxter says Super Sport United players and Dean Furman, as well as Bradley Hobbler, didn't train today but should be ready tomorrow morning. I got a text from the, the sporting director Amiens in France saying that he was actually watching the game and Bongani Zungu had twisted his knee and it looks like he has lig- ligament damage. So that was not a good one. I was watching the game Sundowns uh, in Cape Town City and Watch Tembazwani go down with a dislocated toe. So I didn't hold out much hope that he was going to come, but he did come. But the doctor has told him that it could go again and it's, the risk is high and therefore he's returned home. Klompo Kakana has got a, a massive hematoma in his thigh and he can't even drive his car. So he's also out. And I'm just waiting now for a, a medical report from France for Lebo Madiba, Madiba, who they say, we haven't seen the scan yet, they say he's got a grade 2 hamstring tear. Orlando Pirates winger and Vincent Pule, Super Sport United utility midfielder Aubrey Mudiba, as well as Mamelodi Sundowns workhorse Tiani Mabunda, have since been called up to camp. Meanwhile, Turkey based forward Henry Onyekuru will be the first player to arrive at the Super Eagle Savory Hotel Resort and Spa in Victoria later today as a Nigeria opens camp for Saturday's 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifying match against the Pirates of the Seychelles. Channel Africa's Tony Ubana reports from Lagos in Nigeria. The Galatasaray SK Maxman is scheduled to land in Victoria on the island of May today to be followed two and a half hours later by Nigeria-based goalkeeper Ikechukwe Ezemwa who will arrive with the Nigeria-based members of the technical crew and backroom staff. All the other players on Coach Genetro's 24-man roster will arrive at a team hotel tomorrow with one group to come in before breakfast and another group expected at lunchtime. Raw has included three goalkeepers, eight defenders, six midfielders and seven forwards in his list for the crucial match with four other players on standby. 
Not rugby news, Springbok assistant coach Matthew Proudfoot says it will be important for the Springboks to get consistency and physicality back into their game. This, this if they are to bounce back from their defeat against Argentina when they play against Australia in their Castle Laga Rugby Championship Test match in Brisbane on Saturday. Proudfoot wants the Springboks to replicate how they performed in Durban against the Los Pumas. Big focal point for us is to to bounce back from the loss last week in um, in Mendoza. So uh, we're looking to get more consistency out of the team. You know, we felt we played really well in Durban and let ourselves down in Mendoza. So we're looking for the consistency to play with the same physicality we played in Durban and to look to repeat that performance. Well, Proudfoot believes that they will need to do much better on their execution in all departments of the, as the Wallabies will look to play the same way as Argentina did, which is uh, being up in their faces at all times. Yeah, execution across the board, you know, whether it had been set phase or breakdown or defence, uh, you know, continuity wasn't as good as um, it had been in, uh, in Durban. So we, we're looking to, to get the, the execution better, you know, the better of all our skills, not just certain areas, but across the board, our execution needs to improve. So that's, uh, we know that the Argentinians were, were more, more in our face uh, than they were in Durban, and we must expect the same. The Australians are, are looking to bounce back, so we're really expecting them to be in our face. So you need to prepare under pressure and really prepare with the same intensity that we expect the game to be on Saturday. And finally, in cricket news, England's highest test run scorer Alistair Cook will retire from international cricket after this week's final test against India. Cook has scored 12,254 runs and made 32 centuries in his 160 tests, which is an all-England record. The fifth test of the series in which England have an unassailable 3-1 lead starts on Friday at the Oval. Cook is sixth on the overall list of test run scorers and has made a record 11,620. 27 runs as an opener. The Zaya Sports News at the sound back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. Thank you to Musibu Dimakura for that sports update. She's the award-winning sports presenter right here on Channel Africa. We celebrate her. She won another award in the G-Sports Awards. So we are so proud of you, girl. Thank you so much. Recapping our top stories right here on Africa Digest. The Forum for Africa-China Cooperation draws to a close in Beijing. And South Africa's Minister of Health says the battle against listeriosis is officially won. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Leander Maome, technical producer Catherine Malika and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Remember, you can send us comments on the show. Uh, the email address is info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. We are also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at channelafrica1. And taking us to the top of the hour is Wafika by Dr. Happy 
Love me. 